From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID-19 is scary. It's also an opportunity to adapt. Today, we launch a series with Coloradans who are helping shape a new normal. We'll start with the future of bars and restaurants. They've been sucker punched by the virus, and they won't reopen at full capacity. Unless you start thinking about the outdoor spaces with the nice weather, can they expand their patios? What about into their parking lot? Um, What about into their neighbor's front area, if they're willing to do so? Meanwhile, one Denver chef hopes the pandemic ushers in a new era for workers. There could be a good opportunity for change in our industry. You know, our, our industry was, in my opinion, broken before this. Later, a crisis that shaped an earlier generation and recipes from another small town Colorado cookbook. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We can't predict what the future will look like after COVID-19, but we can meet the Coloradans who will help shape that future, guiding us to a new normal. And we'll start meeting them today in a new series. Today, the future of food service. COVID-19 has ravaged bars and restaurants, but many are adapting and even starting to reimagine their industry. We're joined by Alex Seidel. He won the 2018 James Beard Award for Best Chef in the American Southwest, and he owns several restaurants in Denver, including Fruition and Chook Charcoal Chicken. And welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. And Sonia Riggs is president and CEO of the Colorado Restaurant Association, which represents about 3,800 eateries across the state. Hi, Sonia. Hi. Happy to be here. Alex, before we talk about the future, I'd like to talk about the present. You own Fruition, Mercantile, and a few other restaurants in Denver. How many people combined did you lay off? Oh, boy. I haven't even put all the numbers for Chuck together, but um, mm. somewhere about 130, right around 130, and then probably another 30 or so at Chuck. And Ryan, to put that into perspective, let me tell you, we just did a survey, and we estimate that more than 173,000 restaurant employees in Colorado have been laid off or furloughed since the beginning of this. Yeah, statistics from the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment show that restaurant workers made up 37 percent of all unemployment claims the week after Governor Paulus issued the stay-at-home order in March. And the food service industry has filed the most jobless claims every week since. Alex, just talk about the market conditions that made such a decision necessary. And of course, I'm interested in how that felt for you. Well, I think we had heightened tensions at the end of February. And as it got into March, you know, our fears really started to heighten. And I I recall calling our landlords at Union Station before the mandated closures just to kind of ask what protocol was that like in this public space? And what if we had to close down? And and then it was literally like four days later, we were all mandated to shut down. And it was a tough time, but we, uh, within 24 hours, we got all of our teams together in person. Uh, we had letters written. Uh, we had directions to unemployment. We wanted our teams to be able to uh, have a fast track in that em- unemployment line because we knew it was going to be long. But, you know, when you're mandated to close down, there's no way 
to keep paying people, and we wanted to be thoughtful about our employees' futures. Of course, the closures allowed restaurants to do carry-out. In what way were you able to preserve at least some of your staff? How have you been using those you've preserved? We kept on all of our salaried managers, which is kind of a crazy move in itself. And I think that was 17 people just between the two restaurants. Um, now, aren't they the most expensive people? Why keep them on? They are. But, you know, everything I've learned about tough times like this is if you're able to invest, and we wanted to invest in the nucleus of our team and use this time to become stronger and closer. And, you know, there was a lot of fear in the beginning within our team, but we overcame that hurdle. Uh, We pivoted and created new programs in both of our restaurants. We've had to look at the silver linings, and when we do, we all realize, wow, we accomplished a lot in the last few weeks, things we've never done before. When you say pivot, and I'd love to get some more examples of that from you, Sonia, in a bit, but when you say pivot, what do you mean? Well, you know, when all this happened and we had to lay off those workers, my biggest concern was how are our teams going to eat through these eight weeks? That was our focus. We took two days off to take a mental break, and we literally started to work on creating programs to feed our teams and to feed the community and and to give us some sense of worth. You know, this is the only thing that I've done for 32 years is cook for people. It's all I know, and if I was just sitting at home, I feel like I was dying. Uh, so this gives us all an opportunity to feed people. And, uh, you know, I've been delivering health care worker meals to all the different hospitals. And, you know, these are things we we had to organize and we had to strategize and think of all the logistics of uh, serving just a takeout at fruition, which we've never done before. And recreating a new menu, thinking about our safety practices and how we protect our employees and how we protect our guests and uh, show that we're putting the ultimate thought process into the healthy and safety of our environment. So so you, the, the pivot has meant some like voluntarism and it's meant also pivoting the for-profit aspect of the business. Yeah, I think um, there's no profit. um. (laughs) Yeah, I use that term loosely for obvious reasons. So I want to talk more about the kinds of changes that you'll see making into the future. But Sonia, can you shed more light on, one, how hard hit restaurants have been, and two, the kinds of pivoting uh, the more resilient ones have done? Absolutely. Um, 98% of Colorado restaurants in our recent survey have said that they've lost sales compared with the same time the year before. I wonder who the 2% are. (laughs) Right. Well, I've heard anecdotally, uh, you know, traditional pizza delivery companies are are doing, faring a bit better than obviously full service restaurants. Hmm. But on average, uh, operators reported a 76% decline in sales during that period, during the, the beginning of April compared with last year. That's huge. And we are seeing, to Alex's point, and, you know, he's doing what makes sense for him. I'm seeing businesses be real creative in lots of different ways because takeout, delivery, curbside pickup, drive-throughs are all open. And, in fact, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment even said it may be a less risky way especially for those high-risk groups, to get the food that they need. So I've seen restaurants be extremely creative. They're offering um, alcohol to go, which you're allowed to do, and mixed drinks packages. They're changing their menus up and doing family meals. You know, like a a family of four can get this, and, and here's what's included. 
and they're creative in the way that they give you that food. Um, you know, Barolo Grill, for example, you, you pull right up, you tell them what your car make and model is, you pull up and they just load, load the food straight in your car without you even having to talk to somebody. So we were also seeing provisions like whole loaves of bread and, and cartons of eggs. So people yeah. are really doing what they can to, to try to, I think, serve the public and frankly, keep on what little staff they can just to try to survive. Now, it's still unclear when restaurants across the state will be allowed to fully reopen. Governor Polis hasn't made that announcement yet, but is expected too soon. Uh, we should note that restaurants in Mesa County on the Western Slope are allowed to open their dining areas at 30 percent capacity to ensure social distancing. Sonia, can restaurants stay in business if they're only serving a third of the customers they're used to having inside? I I spoke with Sean Kenyon, the kind of famed Denver bartender. He said, we didn't build our business plans around, you know, 50 or 30 percent capacity. We built them around 100 percent capacity. Right. And I'll tell you what I'm hearing from restaurants is the longer that the stay-at-home order is in place. So, you know, Denver has said it's at least through May 8th, for example. That's the, the full order before they even begin to start looking at opening up restaurants. So the governor has said he's hopeful for the middle of May, but I'm I'm not feeling real confident about that. Mm. But I'll tell you what, what we're hearing from restaurants and in Denver in particular, restaurants are saying if they can't open till the end of May, 30 percent may permanently go out of business. And overall, around the entire state, we're hearing about 22% may permanently close if, if restaurants don't start to get to open. Um, so think about this, you know, when they do open, if it's at a limited capacity, say 50% or, or 25%, we've seen different things in different states, it's going to be a very different world. And all that does is just, and I, I'm telling you, I've heard this from a number of restaurants, it just kills them more slowly. So we've got to be creative, and we're pushing for a lot of flexibility through state and local jurisdictions on how can they increase the capacity while obviously still keeping people safe as they begin to reopen. Well, how, that's interesting. I don't know how you push for that. In other words, well, a floor space is a floor space, and and a capacity is a capacity. You know, unless you start thinking about the outdoor spaces with the nice weather, can they expand their patios? beyond where it would traditionally be. Obviously, you've got to look at right-of-way and, and ADA compliance, but what about into their parking lot? Um, what about into their neighbor's front area, if, if they're willing to do so? So just kind of thinking outside of the box where we can. I, th- I think that's going to be really important. I mean, Denver's even saying, well, what, maybe we shut down some streets to allow for um, businesses to expand out into the street. Alex, I know that restaurants operate already on pretty thin margins, Talk to me a little bit about how those margins get even thinner in the kind of environment that Sonia's describing. You know, it is uh, 50% um, just doesn't quite cut it. And I think... Do you mean 50% capacity? 50% capacity, yes. We're just looking at other ways to create other revenues. What could, do you want to share your best idea? <laughs> we will probably continue to do to go at fruition through the, uh, the rest of the year. Mm. Um, we have talked about expanding potentially to a lunch program at fruition for the first time in 13 years. So if we have to limit uh, how many people we can do at night, then if we could do a little bit more during the day, it might help offset. I'd like to transition to what a restaurant looks like going into the future. One, 
Do you if, have if, a crystal ball? <laughs> well, no, but <laughs> we I know wish. I know that you've been thinking about it, Alex. You've at least been trying as best you can to, to look in your crystal ball. So let, let me have you share some of that. What have you thought about in terms of spacing in dining rooms and mask wearing and kind of transmitting to the customer this place is safe? From what I understand, you know, the Denver mandate for restaurants relaxes and allows restaurants to open on uh, the 12th uh, as of right now, which I'm not betting on or hoping on. I'm actually hoping that it's, it goes a little bit longer. And us as a group, if it does open up, we can pretty much guarantee we're not going to be one of the first ones racing to open our dining rooms. Why? For the very uh, reason that we were talking about earlier is restaurants just cannot operate on 25 and 50% capacities. Mm-hmm. You know, you are adding more labor dollars to provide service in the dining rooms. And just the feeling of serving in a mask, and greeting people in a mask. Um, There's so many things about touch and emotion in restaurants and experience. That's why people go to them. And there's eye contact and there's a simple smile and uh, there's reading people's facial expressions. And a lot of that is going to be lost. So I'm not not racing into operating fruition and uh, mercantile in that way. I think this is why you really are looking at the long view in terms of of pickup, huh? Yeah. Union Station is uh, a little bit scary for me. It's a large public place. Mm. Uh, I I view things like dining halls or uh, food halls. Large public places are going to be some of the last places to come back. So, you know, we have to look at fruition, mercantile, and Chook quite differently. Uh, Chook is a model that I haven't really talked much about because... We're doing fairly decently there. Why? You know, it's, yeah, help us understand that. Well, I opened Chook because it was really meant for these types of opportunities, is to feed people really good food at a really good price. And uh, I grew up food insecure, and we opened Chook so we could feed families of four for $40, where that's not necessarily the case at Fruition and Mercantile. So it's a different model, and before all this happened, 40 to 50% of our business was already takeout. Mm. So there wasn't much of a pivot that we had to do there. You know, we had to figure out, our again, our, our health practices and what it meant to take credit cards over the phone only and, and no payments in the store and what it meant to pick up bags right inside the uh, entryway on a table with your name on it. We are hearing Alex Sonia say that he wants to take it slow and gradually, and and is that true of all restaurant owners? It's not. I mean, I I hear what he's saying from a lot of folks, but I also hear the opposite. I hear folks saying, guys, come on, we've got to get open in some capacity, and it's different for every restaurant. So Fruition, for example, has a very small footprint, right? So it doesn't make sense, and I'm I'm hearing from from a number of restaurants, they're not going to be able to open for some time until their capacity can be at least 80%. But there are a number of restaurants who are just clamoring to get open in some way, um, knowing that things are going to look different. The social distancing is probably going to be key. You know, some people are talking about, does it make sense to have plexiglass in between the tables? And, And we've had conversations with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and they're saying... Not really. I mean, it doesn't, you know, having a a piece of plexiglass in between the table, this illness is airborne and it doesn't travel in a straight line. It'll kind of linger. So that social distancing is going to be probably the number one thing we see. It's going to be more frequent cleanings. Um, You know, perhaps somebody at the door opening the door for you so you may not have to touch the door handles, you know. So so we're not sure what that's going to look like, but I will say 
you know, no two restaurants operate the same, and, and what works for one may not work for another. So what we're asking for is flexibility. You, you brought up the single-use menu. Well, you're asking now an industry that has been devastated financially to shell out more costs to reprint menus hmm. after every single use. Hmm. I mean, that, that may be tough. So some flexibility might be allow them to have a sandwich board as you walk in to let them know what their options are that day. Maybe provide one laminated menu to each table that they can share and is disinfected after each use. But, but allowing a little bit of flexibility, I think, is going to go a long way as restaurants are trying to reopen. So it's interesting. Interesting. Here's what I'm hearing from you guys. I, I hear the future of restaurants headed in one of two directions, and maybe this is too black and white, so please correct me. But you've said, Alex, that the more accessible takeout approach that you did at Shook has really fared relatively well in the pandemic. And on the other hand, I also hear from the Colorado Restaurant Association that dining in might become a more rarefied experience. Are we likely to see kind of one end or the other? In other words, dining in becomes an extremely expensive, intensive affair where I am paying a lot more because there are so many costs involved in keeping that a safe environment and the footprint is reduced. And on the other hand, you know, a place that can offer me a really good bargain to take out, like those are the two avenues that are going to succeed. Alex, what do you think? You know, as we move back into opening up and what does it look like, there could be a good opportunity for change in our industry. You know, our our industry was, in my opinion, broken before this. Um, How so? And, well, you have people that work their lives, their all their lives, um, and they work through a restaurant environment, and there's very little reward for most. You know, it's tough to buy a house when you're a uh, a manager of a restaurant. Mm. Um, as a sous chef or a chef, it's really tough to uh, build for long-term future and in, in retirement. There's not a lot of 401k plans or retirement plans in restaurants. And so I'm looking at this as really maybe an opportunity to shift the industry a bit. I mean, we've we've seen some models change as far as Danny Meyer and his restaurants. And I know it's been a struggle to change the tip model, but We've got to really look at our industry and how we take care of people. And, you know, we have servers and we have great servers and we have dedicated servers that have been doing this for a long, long time. One of my servers I've been working with for 17 years. So, and servers usually graduate to management and you have these managers that run your restaurants and they're the idea people and they're the ones that are responsible for the scheduling. And how do you value a server that makes $35 an hour with gratuities and tips, but then you have a manager that is responsible for so much more making $31 an hour. So we're looking at even, you know, we're closed. We don't have hourly workers. We're starting to bring them back, but we're kind of looking at this as an opportunity at fruition to go to a a service charge model. Can I jump into it? Let let me just say, so Danny Myers uh, waged a sort of famous war, this is how it was often portrayed, against tipping. But go go ahead. Well, what we're, again, what works for one restaurant doesn't work for every restaurant. I mean, 85% of restaurant owners, they started as in an entry-level position. So there are some great opportunities. They're talking about the tipping model, and I get that, but it's not everybody is on the same page as that because, and, and Danny Meyer did have to 
slow things down quite a bit and, and lost what I heard is 40%, I think, of his best longtime servers because they didn't like that model. So, you yeah. know, we've, we've, seen, we've seen tipping uh, being suggested that it goes away in yeah. certain states. I, I don't want to debate that here back. because it's like that, that, that is a whole hour unto itself right. or more. But what do you, what do you make of my, my theory there? Is it, is it off base to think that the dining experience is going to become more rarefied while the takeout experience is sort of more democratized? Well, you know, the takeout experience has already been um, enhanced because this younger generation, you know, you, you can with, with Uber Eats and Grubhub and these models allowing them to get a really nice dining experience in their own home, we've already seen that trend start to happen. So I, I certainly think it's going to be amplified. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, but, you I, know, I, remember um... a point that I was trying to make, though, is people like gathering. They like being around each other. And, oh. and restaurants, dining in at restaurants allows for that. So I don't think that's going to go away. I think it's certainly going to be modified, at least in the short time. But people really like that experience, which is why they eat out. Alex? There are so many silver linings in this. One being access to really good food. I mean, I've been fighting for our food systems here in Colorado, and we're seeing that, you know, our producers are not in trouble like the Tyson's and there are people who want good food. There are people who still enjoy really good wine. I don't think that's going to go away. It certainly um, might be a dent in the pocketbook for a few years. Uh, our economy is going to struggle to get back, no doubt about it. And that's for many industries. So we know that it might take a bit of a hit. Um, yeah, because but, we have to think about people's disposable income. Uh, Absolutely. In this, it's, you know, it's Absolutely, yeah. So uh, do you picture that mom and pop restaurants, for lack of a better term, are the more vulnerable ones here? Or like, Sonia, you said that if the restrictions on restaurants go well past May, that about a third of restaurants you thought would not make it. Is that more likely to hit the mom and pop restaurants? And what we see after this is like the chains? Yes, I think some of these smaller ones. And remember that the restaurant industry is not one of big profit margins, right? 95 to 97 cents of every dollar brought in goes to the people, the place, and the food. So there's not a lot left to live with. So a small mom-and-pop business with little or no cash reserves that's just living week to week, they're not going to be able to survive very long. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Ryan. Chef Alex Seidel and Sonia Riggs of the Colorado Restaurant Association, her group's charitable arm has a COVID-19 relief fund for restaurant workers, and they're taking applications. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the shifting sands of the U.S. Senate race. A day of global giving and unity is planned for May 5th. It's called Giving Tuesday Now, and it will be a day to join with people around the world to create a wave of generosity through support for all the worthy organizations in your community and beyond. If the in-depth news coverage and music respite you get from Colorado Public Radio have been a lifeline for you, please consider including CPR in your charitable giving. May 5th on Giving Tuesday Now. The clock is ticking. In just three days, Colorado Secretary of State must tell county clerks definitively which candidates will be on the June primary ballot, including for U.S. Senate. Normally, that's not a deadline many people pay attention to, but this year's different. There are numerous court cases over who has done enough to qualify. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland joins me now to explain exactly what's going on. Hi, Benta. 
Hi, Ryan. And what is going on here? <laughs> well, COVID-19 came at a crucial time during the election cycle when candidates were in the throes of gathering signatures or going through the state assembly process to yeah. try to get their names placed on the primary ballot. And several Democratic candidates, including some that are running for U.S. Senate, filed legal challenges when they didn't make the ballot. And these candidates argued that COVID-19 led to just insurmountable obstacles because everything was shut down and they couldn't gather signatures. A Denver district judge agreed and ordered the state to put their names on the ballot and said, given the circumstances, they did well enough and made a good faith effort to substantially comply with the law. So who are they? Well, Democratic Senate candidate Michelle Frigno-Warren filed the first case and won in court. She received about half of the valid signatures she needed for the ballot. And she's a nonprofit executive and immigration activist. I wasn't trying to say, you know, I'm trying to create this one avenue so that I can get on the ballot because I didn't get what I thought I was going to get. That was really not about it. It was how can we ensure that even under a global pandemic, our fair and free election process moves forward? Then there's also Democratic Senate candidate Lorena Garcia. Her name is on the ballot right now. And then one more, Eric Underwood. He used a different route than the other two. He went through the state assembly process, and he's arguing that the Democratic Party's process was flawed. He's alleging voter fraud. And the assemblies were, were held virtually instead of in person. He's suing the state and the Democratic Party. And so the court hearing is actually scheduled for later today. I mean, if some or all of them make it onto the Senate primary ballot, that's that's like a game changer. Well, it'll definitely give voters in that Democratic primary more options. Not long ago, it looked like the choice was just going to be between two candidates, former Governor John Hickenlooper and former State House Speaker Andrew Romanoff. So now it could end up being five candidates in total. But the three trying to, to get on or who are, would be on right now have much lower name ID and haven't run for office before. Hickenlooper is still considered the clear frontrunner. But even though a judge ordered at least two of these candidates be added to the ballot, th that is not the end of it, it sounds like. It's not, because the Democratic Secretary of State, you know, she's appealing the decision to place Ferrigno Warren on the ballot. And Griswold argues that it's unfair for a candidate who fell significantly short on the signature threshold to be added when others earned access through, quote, full compliance with the election code. And then those who fell short but decided not to sue. And that appeal went to the state Supreme Court. The court is expected to weigh in later this week before that Thursday deadline for ballot certification. Talking about Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. So is this battle only happening in the Senate primary? It's not. A, a judge ordered a House candidate onto the ballot, too. So whatever the state Supreme Court decides actually could impact a number of races. And it's an interesting legal question uh, around what's substantial compliance when we're in this unprecedented global pandemic. Oh. I mean, I would have figured, given the pandemic, that the conversation would mostly be about how people are campaigning, but it really is helping determine who and what we're going to be voting on. Exactly. It really threw the candidate qualification process into disarray, both the signature gathering, the party assemblies, and lots of those losing candidates are unhappy with how everything was run. Uh, Kim Akeley-Sharon, she's a Democrat who was running for Larimer County Commissioner, and she came close to making the ballot, but she decided not to sue 
partly because of the expense and also because Akeley Sharon heads an education foundation. And she said COVID-19 made that work even more critical. Helping my community was right in front of me. And I knew that as the executive director of the foundation, that I was in a unique place to help. So that's what I had to do at that time. So it's like you, you mentioned, it will change who people vote for. And one more point to add, COVID-19 could make it much harder for people to get measures on the, the November ballot. Mm. So initiatives that voters can vote up or down, no one can gather signatures now. And that means there will be a shorter window when things get back closer to normal. Benta, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland. And whatever the state Supreme Court decides, you can read her coverage at CPR.org. A crisis can define a generation. Today, it's a global pandemic. Fifty years ago, there was Apollo 13. That was astronaut Jack Swigert and then Jim Lovell. The crew defied death in space and returned to Earth in 1970, the same year, incidentally, that CPR was founded. And to mark our 50th, we're looking at our state then and now. Today, space science and exploration. CU astronomer Doug Duncan is back with us. Hi, Doug. Hello, Ryan. So one constant over these 50 years has been Colorado's role in space. There was a Coloradan aboard Apollo 13, Jack Swigert, we just heard. Um, The state now has the second largest space economy in the country. Uh, But Doug, what was the importance of Apollo 13 in particular? You know, I think the whole Apollo program, Ryan, was a high point of American ingenuity and a real can-do spirit. Remember President Kennedy, I remember hearing this as a kid, and he Mm. said, we choose to do this not because it will be easy, but because it will be hard. It will challenge America. And I think we really showed how we could rise to a challenge. Apollo was was a high mark in that. And it wasn't just the challenge of getting into space. It was all the challenges we met once we were in space, as I think Apollo 13 demonstrates. Do you remember being especially passionate about that mission in particular? You were in high school, Uh, maybe? You know, I was uh, passionate as a kid about all of this idea of going to the moon. Um, I can actually remember unmanned spacecraft. And, of course, they didn't send back any pictures. They just sent back their speed and their altitude. (laughs) And here comes this thing landing on the moon. It's at 1,000 feet. And it's going, you know, 50 miles an hour. Now it's at 100 feet. And it's going 20 miles an hour. And now it's landed. And all it was was a narrator in numbers, like the power of radio. But it was great. In 1971, NASA gave the green light to another big idea, a telescope in space. Uh, It took 19 years, but finally in 1990, the Hubble Space Telescope launched. And so uh, it's celebrating an important anniversary this year as well. Why, Why put a telescope in space and like how far back had that idea gone? Yeah, well, believe it or not, the idea was back in the 1940s. An astronomer at Princeton named Lyman Spitzer realized that if we put a telescope above the Earth's atmosphere, we could see the universe literally in a whole new light because ultraviolet and X-rays 
uh, those radiations don't come through our atmosphere, which is great. It protects us personally. But uh, we shot a few rockets into space just for a few minutes, suborbital rockets. And we saw ultraviolet, we saw x-rays, and we knew there was a great opportunity. It was pretty personal for me, Ryan, because I was on the staff of the Hubble telescope at the time of launch. And my my best friend was actually on board the shuttle operating the arm that put Hubble into space. So my job and my friend were all on board. I remember that day of launch. (laughs) Were you excited, nervous, a mix of both? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. A, oh. a mix, I gather. Well, so it's interesting you mention uh, the space telescope and the shuttle program because, in, in a way, those are both born around the same time and they kind of grew up together. And oh yeah, the, the shuttle was supposed to launch Hubble in '86, and then, of course, disaster struck. One, it's one of my earliest memories. Remind us what happened. Well, um, when the Challenger blew up, the whole space program pretty much came to a halt, had to be reevaluated. things had to be redesigned. When it came to the Hubble, it delayed it a good four years. A CU-trained astronaut lost his life aboard Challenger. Later, there was a CU grad on the Columbia mission when it broke apart, and that's a painful reminder of Colorado's connection to the, the shuttle program. Let, let's describe Hubble a bit. Um, how big is it and how powerful is it? So the Hubble telescope is roughly the size of a city bus. Okay. It was designed to be the biggest thing that would fit into the space shuttle, and it clears by just a few inches, fills the whole cargo bay. Remember, it was designed in the mid-1980s, and so that means it was built in the early 1980s. And I've got a a fun question for our listeners, I think. And that question is, uh, how much memory do you think the Hubble telescope had in its main computer when it was launched, I gave you a hint, okay, about the uh, the time period was when a guy named Jobs and another guy named Wozniak were in a garage uh-huh. and they were working on computers. Anybody want to guess? Uh, I find it amazing that Hubble Telescope's main computer had 32k of memory. <laughs> The, the phone I am talking to you on has exactly 32 gigabytes of memory. That means my phone is one million Hubble telescopes. Wow. Now, the great thing is the astronauts went back up to Hubble five different times, and each time they did, they upgraded it. And don't feel sorry for Hubble now. It's got much better computer, but it launched with 32K. That's remarkable. Uh, so, Space Shuttle Discovery put Hubble in orbit in April 1990. As you said, you were working on the staff at the time. Do you remember the reaction when the first pictures came back? Disaster. Disaster. I mean, it was the Titanic. Uh, we couldn't believe that the telescope couldn't focus, that everything was blurry. And um, it took days for it to sink in, but every uh. day was worse than the last day. And this had everything to do with a mirror. Is that right? That's right. The Hubble's main mirror was beautifully polished to the wrong prescription. (laughs) You know, it'd be like you went to the eye doctor and they gave you the wrong set of glasses. Except that the eye doctor in this case is is how far away? Well, is is a long ways away. And not only that, um, you know, we kind of joke about, could you put glasses on Hubble? Yeah. And the answer is, even if you had eight feet diameter glasses to correct its aberration, 
glass does not pass ultraviolet, and it would defeat one of the reasons for going into space. But fortunately for everybody, a very smart engineer at Ball Aerospace right here in Colorado, Kirk Badova, he realized that you could use a mirror, which bounces all the different kinds of light off it, and if the mirror had a little correction in it, just like glasses, it could cause Hubble's aberration to go away and focus sharply. So Colorado is responsible for saving Hubble. Ball Aerospace is responsible. Did heads roll when they realized that the original mirror was incorrect? Do you remember if there were consequences? I I do, you know, and I wish the answer was yes. (laughs) And and it wasn't. Wow, okay. You know, I think people, a few people got chastised. But I don't remember any heads that I saw rolling. Do you remember seeing the first pictures after the fix, Doug Duncan? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, what What a great example of how critical and resourceful and ingenious the astronauts are also. Because I met uh, the crew that went up. And actually, my buddy Steve went back up and, and helped fix Hubble. And when that sharp picture came in, just the whole room burst into applause, and we knew there was an awesome future ahead. Uh, It it was great. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we speak regularly about space science with astronomer Doug Duncan uh, in Boulder. And this time, as CPR marks its 50th anniversary this year, we are looking at the space industry in Colorado over half a century. And what images from Hubble stand out to you over the years? Do you have do you have some favorites? Oh, I do. You know, I have favorites. Everybody I talk to has favorites, Ryan. We, I, we call it Hubble hugging. Okay, <laughs> we're, all Hubble, we're all Hubble huggers nowadays. Uh, I, some of the most dramatic pictures are stars being born and stars dying. So when you see all those beautiful nebulas of pink and and green and purple, I can tell you the pink is always hydrogen, the green is glowing oxygen, the purple is nitrogen, and those are all the elements that are going into forming stars. And so some of the best pictures are star formation. But then when stars die, when the sun becomes a red giant, um, eventually the outer part of our, our sun will reach out to the Earth and then come off the sun. It'll leave a white dwarf, which is the sun's old core, and it'll make a beautiful nebula. Uh, one of those is called the ring nebula, and one is the spirograph nebula, and one's the cat's eyes nebula. They're such exotic shapes, they all come to have names. So star birth and star death are, are, are some of the most beautiful Hubble pictures. I love that birth is a choreography of pink, green, and purple. Um, Looking back 50 years, Colorado had fingerprints then on Apollo, the space shuttle, Hubble, really impossible to name all of the various missions that are connected to the states. Um, But since we're talking about telescopes, I want to mention the Kepler Space Telescope, which was run by CU Boulder and just retired, what, like two years ago. What was its, That's right. what was its biggest Its discovery? mission was to find planets around other stars, uh-huh. looking for the tiny, tiny dip in light when a planet passes in front of a star and then comes around again on its orbit and does it again. And by the third time, we say, ooh, we found a planet. 
And Kepler found thousands of planets around the several tens of thousands of stars that it studied. And so now we know that planets are ubiquitous. They are all through our galaxy. You go outside at night and look at a star, it's probably got a planet going around it. What an awesome discovery. But, but we haven't definitively found life. What's the closest we've come? You know, I, we have planets that are too hot. We have planets that are too cold. Mm. And we have Goldilocks planets that are just right. Um, they probably have liquid water. So planets are on other stars, but maybe closer to home. Uh, you know, uh, what I'm looking forward to in the future is that in a few months, we're going to launch the Mars 2020 rover to Mars. And like previous rovers, it's going to drive around. It's going to look around on Mars uh, for evidence of water, possible evidence of life. But for the first time, it's going to collect samples. It's going to drill and it's going to put all those drill cores like in a box. <sighs> okay. And it's going to leave that box to be picked up. And so we, uh, I, I presume, are going to design a mission to go to Mars, grab that box, and bring the samples back to the Earth. And that's something I am really looking forward to. I would love to see what's inside those samples. Oh, we'll have to end it there. And we didn't even get to mention the successor to the space shuttle, the Dream Chaser, which is uh, by Sierra Nevada, made in Colorado. So is the spacecraft that'll return people to the moon, Orion, designed by Lockheed Martin. That's astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News stories are sometimes told with the camera of photojournalist Hart Van Denberg. Was on the hill, walking around with a camera, talking to people, and it was really fun to see the looks on their faces when I'd say, I'm from Colorado Public Radio. And they'd say, but you have a camera. I said, yes, I do. It's another way of giving people the journalism being done in the CPR newsroom. Get closer to the stories from CPR News on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and at CPR.org. We're asking Coloradans to share their favorite cookbooks in our series, The Kitchen Shelf. We're not talking about glossy cookbooks from celebrity chefs or five-star restaurants, but the spiral-bound, three-ring binder kind, put together by high school booster clubs, local lodges, or in today's case, for a hospital fundraiser. Given the times, it seemed fitting to highlight recipes from healthcare workers. A collection of successful operations in the kitchen, KCCMH. And uh, what is KCCMH? Kit Carson County Memorial Hospital. This cookbook is from the early 1990s, and you heard Janice Palter there. She lives in Greeley, but grew up in First View, Colorado, then Stratton, close to the Kansas border. And her mother and sister were nurses at the hospital in Burlington, Colorado. As a fundraiser, the hospital assembled this cookbook filled with local recipes. And I mean filled. It's giant. Oh, gosh, it's probably a good three inches thick. I mean, it's almost like the size of a Betty Crocker cookbook that you would get from the store. You know, it, it was it's huge. <laughs> and anything you could possibly imagine is in there. How many pages? Oh, I don't. Over 300 but when I got married, I did not know how to cook. And my sister, she's a nurse, and she was one that was selling me this book. I thought, well, heck, I'm, you know, got to support the hospital. So I'm looking through it, and I'm like, man, I can do these. <laughs> 
And they were, yeah, pretty easy stuff. And I enjoyed doing it. The family would eat it. That's a big thing. (laughs) (laughs) So this book taught you to cook. Yes, it did. Oh, definitely. Janice Palter calls the recipes no-nonsense, which also kind of describes her mother, again, who was also a nurse. She was no-nonsense. We lived out in the middle of nowhere. She made do. You just couldn't run down the street to go get whatever. We had all our own milk. We had our own garden, beef, everything. And that's the way a lot of them were out there. And that's how they cooked. You know, you cook with what you have on hand because you just can't run to the store. And generally, the store didn't have anything real fancy. So these are pretty basic recipes with nothing fancy, no nonsense. It's like you get your dinner on in less than a half an hour because you got a hungry family to feed. And that dinner often included one key ingredient. Ground beef. A lot of ground beef. You can do about 101 things with ground beef, and they have them all. <laughs> and that reflects the area, too, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Very... Very heavy on the beef. (laughs) A meat and potatoes kind of book. And it's a potato recipe Janice points me to. Let me find it here. Okay, so brown potatoes, they're medium-sized peeled new potatoes. I just use regular potatoes. Salt, celery salt, paprika, butter, and chopped parsley. There's not even how much to put of everything. It's just like you cut up how much you need and just put on the seasonings as much as you need. Then you just... Bake it in a moderate oven, 350 degrees, for about 35 minutes. And then it browns real nice. And yeah, it's it's really good eating. We've posted this no-nonsense potato recipe to CPR.org. So all the recipes were contributed by the community or just by the hospital community or what? I think it's pretty much just the hospital community. Not only the nurses. I don't know if I saw too many doctors. They didn't have too many doctors out there at the time. They do now, but not so much then. But like uh, the maintenance person, the clerks, the ward clerks, the office people. So what about Janice's mom? What did the no-nonsense nurse contribute to this, quote, collection of successful operations in the kitchen? Her cake recipe in there. It's the Red Devil's Food chocolate mahogany cake, something like it's got a long name. Old-fashioned mahogany Red Devil's Food cake. Have you made it? Oh, yeah, that is my go-to cake. And a funny story, this is the very first cake I ever made. When I was a kid, I was hungry, and, you know, I feel like there's nothing in the house to eat. And Mom says, well, make this cake. It's fail-proof. Even you can do it. And I've, I've never cooked, so I made it. And it tasted great, but it just didn't look right. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what I did. And I told mom, I I made it exactly like that recipe said. I'd say probably almost 30 years later, my sister writes a letter to everyone and she goes, I figured out what Janice did to that cake. (laughs) I had put baking powder instead of baking soda. (laughs) And it it made it a pound cake instead of a regular cake. So I have made this cake, I don't know how many times, and there has never been a time when I have made it where someone hasn't commented how good it was. And I've made it for 35 years now. (laughs) Does it remind you of your mom? Oh, totally, totally. And it was her mom's recipe. So that's pretty special. What was your mom like? Oh, my mom is just, she's the most generous person I've ever known. She was a very good nurse. And that's why my sister became a nurse, because of the example of my mom. 
And I, I don't know a more honest person or a more generous person than my mother. Another reason this cookbook means so much to Janice? My mom didn't have a whole lot of recipes written down, and we tried to get her to write things down. And it's kind of like one of those, oh, well, you put this in, you put this in. She never said how much and how much it was going to make. And I know she must have had a recipe box somewhere, but I don't know where it is. That is Janice Palter of Greeley. She shared the Kit Carson County Memorial Hospital cookbook called A Collection of Successful Operations in the Kitchen. Again, recipes at CPR.org. By the way, Janice's sister is still a working nurse. And in the face of COVID-19, Janice says she worries about her. Oh, yeah. But you know what? She's kind of a tough old girl. <laughs> I think any of the nurses out there will tell you she's, she's kind of the boss. <laughs> Although she's not the head nurse or anything. But, you know, you do your job and you'll be all right with her. <laughs> If you have an old community cookbook to share, tweet me a photo at CPR Warner, or you can email Colorado Matters at CPR.org. At CPR Warner on Twitter, email Colorado Matters at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>